Let's open our Bibles together, together to Romans chapter 4. Before I read the text to you, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. The apostle has been laboring justification by faith alone. And the entire chapter 4 is devoted to that teaching. Why? Why does he spend so much time expressing, illustrating, focusing on justification by faith alone? I don't know if you noticed, but let me point out to you how this is structured. Chapter 3, verse 27, Paul asks, where is boasting? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Abraham has no boast. You have no boast. Nobody has a boast. We are unrighteous before God in our own works. Chapter 3, verse 28, he says, we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from works. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, Abraham and David are illustrations from the Old Testament of men who understood and who were told they are not righteous in their own works. They are unrighteous. They are justified only by grace. Chapter 3, verses 29 and 30 he asked the question, is God the God of the Jews only, or is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And he answers the question. He's the God of both Jews and Gentiles. He will justify Jews. He will justify Gentiles. He will justify everybody solely on the basis of their faith, not their works. And our text today, verses 9 through 25 of chapter 4, illustrate that God is the God of Gentiles as much as Jews, and we're all in the same place, we are all unjust before God, and we must be declared righteous, and only through faith will we be declared righteous. And as I read the text to you, I want you to listen for how many times Paul uses the word counted or credited righteous over and over again. Why? Why is he so concerned that the church at Rome understands that righteousness comes only by faith? It's because everything he said in the first three chapters is still true. We are unjust. And someday we're going to stand before that great I am that we've sung about. And someday the stars are going to burn down. And we are going to stand at the tribunal of God, a holy and just God, and we're going to be judged. And as he's made the point so clearly, if that were the end of the story, we would perish because our deeds are unjust. And it's a dangerous thing to be unjust and stand before a holy God. The good news is, beloved, we can be righteous before that holy God, but not according to our own works, only 
by believing the gospel. That's why it matters so much to the Apostle Paul. It's our only hope of righteousness. So let's read together, or you listen as I read, from chapter 4, verses 9 through 25. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, while he, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was years, about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. I confess to you, I, as I tried to sleep last night and woke this morning, there was a thought of 
in light of what Dan and Jenny are going through, do we change course this morning? But the more I thought about it, I thought there is no greater news that any of us need to be reminded of than the fact that we stand before a holy God, righteous by faith. It is the only message that gives meaning to anything. We are justified by God through Christ. So we're going to look at the text. Again, why is Paul laboring this? Why is he stressing this? Why is he repeating this over and over and over and over again? Because it's the central message of all of our existence. And, beloved, because we are so prone to look somewhere else for our righteousness. Even as Christians, even as Christians who've been taught well, our hearts and our minds, we drift. And the temptation is always before us to think there's some other righteousness that gives us hope. There isn't. There isn't. First, we're going to look at the fact that we are tempted to trust in religion, religious ritual and ceremony. And that is no place to place our trust. Let's look again at verses 9 through 12. He says, is this blessing on the circumcised or the uncircumcised? He's talking about the blessing he's just quoted from Psalm 32, which David talked about. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the blessing. Sins covered. Sins that God does not register to our account and hold us liable for. Sins that are atoned for and forgiven. This is the great blessing. He says, is this blessing on the circumcised? No, he says. Think about Abraham. When was Abraham declared righteous before God? Well, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. It's the first time belief is mentioned in the Bible. And he says there that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. In Genesis 15, if you recall, God calls Abraham out and he says, Count the stars if you can. Look up and start numbering them. And if you can count them, that's how many sons you're going to have. Do you remember how many sons Abraham had at that point? Zero. And he was justified because he believed. Circumcision comes two chapters later in Genesis 17. And there, Abraham, in addition to circumcising himself, circumcised his son Ishmael, who was 13 years old. So we know that the time between Abraham's justification and circumcision was at least 13 years. Some Jewish scholars want to say it was somewhere closer to 30 years. We don't know for sure, but we know it was at least 13. So his justification was not contingent upon in any way circumcision. That came later. He was declared righteous because of his faith. And Paul uses this to say that's our hope as well, that our justification is not based on religious ritual. So then the question may come, well, why did God even give him circumcision? Paul tells us. 
It was a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had. In antiquity, a seal was the mark of the king, and it did two things. There would be an official document, usually in a scroll form, a decree from the king, and it would be rolled up, and wax would be placed over the opening there, and the the king would place his seal. And that did two things. It secured the document, kept it closed, but it also was the official endorsement from the king. And whatever was now on that scroll, wherever it was taken, it had the seal of the king. It's authenticated by the sovereign one. Think of, think of someone, I'm going to call him Horace, because I like that name. Think of Horace. He's the third generation servant of a king in antiquity. And one day the king calls him in and he says, Horace, I've decided to free you and your family from my service. You are now a free man. Here's a bundle of money. Go start a a life outside of my court. And so Horace takes his his money and he goes and he buys a a farm and he, he, he starts living life as a free man. And he's overjoyed and he's thrilled. He's now free. And he lives this way, and a few years later, the king decides that he wants to to make this official so that all can see. So he calls Horace back, and he puts on a great ceremony, and there's great pomp and circumstance, and he writes it down on a scroll officially by the king's edict, Horace and his family are free. He writes it down, he rolls it up, and he puts his seal on it, and he hands it to Horace. And Horace goes home and he he puts it on his wall in in glass and there it is. So that from now on, anybody who would ever question whether he was truly a free man, he says, look, I have the king's edict and the king's seal. And as as he walked through the living room day after day, week after week, he could look up and see that sign, that, that seal from the king himself. He's a free man. Now, his freedom has nothing to do with that scroll. He's free because the king declared him free. But now he's been given something to remind him and everybody else that he is free. That's what circumcision was. Circumcision didn't make Abraham righteous, didn't make any of his offspring righteous. But it was God's seal, the divine edict stamped on his person saying, you are righteous and I will keep my promises to you. You have a mark in your own flesh of this. He also calls it a sign. Whenever God gave covenants, he gave signs to accompany those covenants. Remember when God destroyed the world in the flood, with the exception of Noah and his family, at the end of it, he put his sign in the the heavens, the rainbow in the sky, as a sign to signify he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. When he made Israel his unique people and separated them, He gave them the sign of the Sabbath. And he said, because I've separated you, I want you to separate this one day a week to remind you, to signify that I have set you apart. A sign is not the thing itself, but it points to something other than itself. Every year when Krista and I and the family drive to St. Louis to see our family there, We get a couple hours or so into the journey, and there's a sign that says, St. Louis, 540 miles. And oh, how we wish that sign was the thing itself, because then we would be there. 
but instead it's pointing us in the direction of St. Louis, which is still hours and hours and hours away. When I sign my signature, that signature is not me, but it represents me. It is my mark that authenticates whatever it is that I'm signing. Tiger Woods gets paid, well, he used to get paid, uh, obscene amounts of money to wear a little swoosh on his shirt and his cap and his shoes. Hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to do that because that was the insignia, the sign of Nike. He didn't get paid obscene amounts of money to wear a little apostrophe on his shirt because that doesn't signify anything didn't mark out anything as special. Signs point to something beyond themselves. Paul here tells us that circumcision was a sign of the righteousness that Abraham had, but he received righteousness not on the basis of the sign, but on the basis of his faith in what God had promised to do. And the same is true for all of us. And Paul says here, he is the father not only of the circumcised, that is the Jews, but he's the father of the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, so he can be the father of us all. Do you ever sing the song at camp? Father Abraham, you, all, you knew where I was going already. He had many sons and many, come on, get your hands, sons had father. Everybody now, I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left, right? You know that song? Some of you don't know that song. You need to be taught that song. Go talk to one of our Sunday school teachers, Mike Rogues or, or Troy, somebody, and ask them to teach you that song. It's true. We, you have as much right. In fact, if you are a believer in the gospel, you have a more accurate claim to being a child of Abraham than an unbelieving Jew. Because when God made that promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky, though he fulfilled that literally and physically in the nation of Israel, that was just a picture. That was just a foreshadow. You and I as believers, we are the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. We are children of Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, if you believe the gospel. He is our father in the faith. Do you know what the father is in the Bible? It's far more than merely the biological ancestor, more than the physical cause of pregnancy. Whenever the Bible speaks of father, it's usually talking as much about what you do as the genetics. That's why when the Jews claim to be children of Abraham, Jesus said, no, you're not. Now, was Jesus mistaken? Did he not know? Of course, they had documentation. They could trace their family tree back to Abraham. So why is Jesus saying, you're not children of Abraham? Because it's not about genetics. He's saying, if you were children of Father Abraham, you would not be trying to kill me. You would be doing God's works. You would be doing Abraham's works. Abraham believed in me. He longed to see my day. We are sons of God and sons of Abraham if we do the works of God and the works of Abraham. This is why John the Baptist, when the, when the Pharisees came out, he said, 
God could raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks. How are you going to do that? Because being a child of Abraham ultimately was not about family tree. It was about the faith tree. Do you believe the promises of God? And Paul says, if you believe the gospel, you have been declared righteous and you are the true heir of Father Abraham. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, are there religious rituals? Are there ceremonies? Are there things that we are tempted to trust in and think, I'm in good standing because I do this? I'm okay with God because I've been baptized. I'm accepted by God because I partake of the Lord's Supper. I go to church every Sunday. I do this. I pray these kinds of prayers. I look to these relics, these images. There's a host of aberrant views out there that try to give people hope in their standing before God based on some ritual. Beloved, we have to be careful and guard against that. Because even if we deny that with our words, sometimes our hearts are pulled and tugged thinking, I've done poorly, I've sinned, I need something to do to give me hope. And that is not what gives us hope. Now God gave us baptism. He gave us the Lord's Supper. And they are to serve us as reminders of the cross. And so they are good tools, but never, never, never think you are righteous before a holy God because of these religious practices. It's only and always because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He took our wrath. He gave us his righteousness. Don't trust in ceremony, in ritual. Secondly, he says, don't trust in your works of the law. Look at verse 13 and following. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified, for the law brings about wrath. But where there's no law, there's also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so the promise may be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. This is a big promise. Paul summarizes the promises made to Abraham, that he would have many descendants, that he would have all the land, that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Paul summarizes all those promises with one phrase, that he's heir of the world. That's a big statement. He's going to inherit the earth. And the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And elsewhere, he tells us that seed ultimately is Jesus Christ. And we see the New Testament saying, Jesus inherits it all. He's the heir of the universe, the heir of the world. It's all given to him by the Father as his inheritance because he loves his son. That was given to Abraham and to his seed. Do you know what Paul's going to go on to say in Romans chapter 8? We are co-heirs with Christ. We inherit the world too. The new heavens, the new earth will become ours. And we will live with him and reign with him and rejoice with our Savior. Why are we going to do that? 
Not because we keep the law of God. Because the promise was not given based on the law, but it was given based upon faith. Now, in Galatians, Paul makes a similar point, but he argues almost purely chronologically. He says, we know the promise is not contingent upon law-keeping because the law didn't come for 400-plus years after the promise was given. Moses came 400 years after Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. It can't be based on the law because the law didn't show up for four centuries. But here he's arguing more logically. He's saying, think this through with me. If Abraham receives the promise based on the law, then it's no longer based on faith and no longer based on promise. Because now it's contingent upon keeping the law. For an example, let's say I were an exceedingly wealthy man. Let's just dream a minute. And I had a huge estate, $3 million home and thousands upon thousands of acres of land and, you know, 10 cars and 15 Mac computers. I always got the newest thing and 15 iPads, you know, living the good life. And I say to my son, son, when you're 25, this is all going to be yours. It's all yours. It's your inheritance. All I'm asking of you is that you trust me, that you believe me, and that you live until you're 25 as though you believe you're going to get it. That's an inheritance based on promise. I promise it's yours. But if I say to him, son, I have amassed this fortune, and it can be yours if you get straight A's all through high school, you become the captain of the football team, which can be kind of hard because he's homeschooled. <laughs> you go to Harvard on a scholarship, and you graduate with a 4.0. And you get a job making six figures right out of the gate. And you marry a woman from a proper family. And you have two dogs, no cats. If you do all of these things exactly as I prescribed, then all of this becomes yours. But if you fail, you don't get it. In fact, if you fail, there will be consequences. Now his inheritance is no longer based on promise, and he doesn't receive it simply by believing that I will keep my promise. But now it's based on my law, on my requirements. And his chances of getting it are zero. Oh, no, I know him quite well. <laughs> That's the point. He says, he didn't say that we would be heirs of the world through the law, but through the righteousness that is by faith. Though, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. It's not according to faith anymore. And it's not according to promise. It's no longer the father saying to the son, I promise this to you. But now it's, if then, if you do this, then this is your reward for it. And then he argues another way in verse 15, he says, or at the end of verse 15, where there is no law, there's no violation. Now, don't rip this out of its context. He's not saying that Abraham was sinless. He uses a very specific word here. It's translated in the NAS as violation. Some of your translations probably have transgression. It's a Greek word, Parabasis, and it's specific to a transgression, a stepping across of a known law. 
This is not sin in general. This is not just Gentile people who don't know any better, quote-unquote, who are just doing what they naturally do, which offends God. This is someone who has the commands of God and who crosses over and breaks that commandment. And he's, he's making a very specific point. If the law was not given to Abraham, which it wasn't, that came again 400 years later, Abraham was not guilty of breaking the law. If God had said, here's the plan, here's the contingency, keep my law and you'll receive the inheritance, then he would be doomed because he wouldn't keep the law like anybody else. He wouldn't keep it. But if there's no law in question here, then Abraham is not judged guilty by that law where God has to punish him. Rather, he can promise the inheritance and give him the inheritance because it's based on his promise, not on law-keeping. He's simply bringing forward here what he said at the end of chapter 3. The law brings sin. It points sin, and where there is sin, there is wrath. If our hope is based on law, we have no hope. But if there's no law to be dealt with, then it can be God's grace and his promise. And that's exactly what he says. The law brings wrath, but there's no law in question here, so there's no transgression of the law. Therefore, God can be the promise keeper. Verse 16, for this reason it's by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, Jew or Gentile, who believe. That's good news. And so my question to us is, are you looking to receive God's goodness by keeping his laws? By your good works? Do you think that God's blessing to you, your inheritance, is contingent upon keeping his commandments? If you do, you're missing out. It's not based on keeping his commandments. It's based on his promise and his righteousness that he gives you and me because we believe the gospel. That's good news. As soon as we start putting our works into the equation, we've lost all hope of receiving the inheritance. Because just like Gabe, you're no better. You're not going to obey God such that he says, ah, you deserve my blessing now on faith, by faith, and faith alone. Don't trust in your own efforts. And then he says, don't trust in what you can see. Speaking of the father of us all, verse 17, as is written, the father of many nations I have made you. That's you. You and I are the nations that he promised him. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, God who gives life to the dead, who calls into being that which does not exist, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured 
that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. I know one of the questions in your mind, how can Paul say he didn't waver? Well, he's taking a a big picture, long-term view. Yeah, there were hiccups along the way. Those hiccups give us some comfort, right? Because even the great father of the faith and the faithful wasn't perfect. But he didn't stop. Like Dari was reminding us, he persevered. Even though he looked at himself and said, I can't father a child at my age. My wife can't carry a baby at her age. Nobody does that. That's what human eyes said. That's what it means against hope. When he looked at the circumstances from a human temporal perspective, there is no hope here. This is not going to happen. And there are times that he, he gave in to that doubt a little bit. He tried with Hagar and had a son. God says, that's not him. That's not the child of promise. That was an act of unbelief on Abraham's part. But when he came to his senses after those brief stumbles, he set his face back to the course and kept going to such a degree on the other side when he finally does have Isaac. You remember the story. He was willing to kill Isaac with his own hands knowing that since this was the child of promise, God would raise him up again because God had said that is the one. And so though with his human eyes there's no hope, he trusted God. God said it And it's true. I don't know if you've heard the old saying, there used to be a bumper sticker when I was a kid, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you seen that bumper sticker? used to drive my dad nuts. He said, my belief has nothing to do with it. If God said it, that settles it. And I should believe it because he said it. That was where Abraham was. God said it, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you multitudes of descendants. And Abraham said, I believe that. I don't know how. I don't know how you're going to do this, God, but I believe it. He remembered who God was. This is the God who spoke into nothing, and he spoke out of nothing and created everything. We talk about creating. You know, we don't actually create anything. We talk about being creative. We don't create anything. We modify We take clay and and we mold it and shape it and we put it in the kiln and it comes out, you know, something that looks like, well, maybe some of you do. My stuff doesn't usually come out looking like anything. But we take stuff, we create music, but we're not really creating music. We take the 12 notes of our tonal system here in the West and we modify and put them together in different ways and and it sounds like something. We don't actually create. God creates. God looks out and there's nothing to see because nothing is. And he says, universe be. And it is. But I don't really think that's what Paul is getting at. I don't think he's talking about God's creation ex nihilo here out of nothing. I think he's talking about what didn't exist yet were the nations. And Abraham, who knew God's character, knew God's power, 
somehow in hope against hope said, God said he's going to bless me with multitudes of descendants. I believe him. God is the one who can call things even that don't exist yet as though they do exist because if he said he's going to do it, it'll happen. And he believed. And he gave glory to God. And he grew strong in faith. Oh, I love that phrase. He didn't start off strong in faith. He started off weak in faith. But it grew. That gives you and I hope. Our faith can grow. Rich stood right here and said, I believe, and yet I need help unbelief. God can answer that prayer. And you're no less than Abraham if you say, I do believe, but I'm weak right now in faith. Abraham was there once, but he grew. How did he grow in his faith? By pondering who it was who made the promises. This is our creator and our savior and the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. I told you earlier you'd be so proud to hear Dan and Jenny talking about this. So we don't understand. Why? Why, if that baby had been delivered yesterday, he would be alive, as far as we can tell. As they held him last night, he was a perfect child, just asleep. How do you make sense of that? At one level, you don't. My counsel was don't try. Why do you not despair at that? Why don't we crumble? Because God said, I am good, and I love you, and I know what I'm doing, even if you don't. And my ways are not your ways. I'm not going to do the things the way you would do them. You're not God, I am. But I'm the great I. And even in your worst moment and your greatest despair and grief and pain, you can trust me. Why? Because I already proved to you my love for you. I sent my son to the cross to take your wrath so that you would have the hope of eternal life and forgiveness, and righteousness by faith. That's how you know I love you. So cry, weep, mourn, but don't despair. Because I'm the God who raises the dead, who calls those things which are not as though they are. And if you believe that, and if you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God who died, who suffered, who knows pain, who knows shame, who knows mourning and grief, he was well acquainted with griefs. If you know that that's who Jesus is, that he died and he came back to life, Paul says his righteousness will be put to your account and you'll be righteous before a holy God. Verse 22, therefore, because he did not waver in unbelief, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. God didn't write this down so that Abraham would know. He already knew. He hasn't preserved Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, for thousands upon thousands of years for Abraham's sake. 
Paul says it was written down for your sake, for my sake. Because we need to hear that Abraham was justified by faith. That's what he says. Not for his sake only was it written down that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. As those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. Paul spends a lot of time here. I've spent a lot of time here. I pray that you will spend a lot of time here because we are tempted to trust in religious ritual. We are tempted to trust in our own works. We're tempted to trust in what we can see to find our hope before God. None of those give us hope because none of those can make us righteous. And we live in a world and in a community and even in a Christian community where we hear an awful lot about relationships with Christ, relationships with God, an awful lot about serving the poor and helping the downtrodden and so on and so forth. What we hear almost nothing about, even in churches, is wrath and unrighteousness. And that there is only one key that unlocks the door that leads to eternal life. And the only key is faith in the work of Christ. If we're going to preach the gospel, and if we ourselves are going to be justified, we've got to get it right. And if we're going to have hope that perseveres to the end, we've got to get this right. It starts with, Trusting in Christ and Christ alone. That's why Paul labors this. That's why I'm laboring this. That's why we as a church of Jesus Christ must labor this. Let's get this right in our hearts and in our preaching. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us hope. Your truth that gives us hope when our own eyes look at things that seem hopeless. Father, thank you for your word which reminds us that our justification comes from the work that you did in the cross. Father, this morning our hearts are heavy and they should be heavy. Dan and Jenny are not the only ones suffering this week. They're not the only family to have lost loved ones, even recently. Father, we are all going to lose loved ones. Because though we spend so much of our life trying to avoid pain and thinking that we're going to outrun death, 
We won't. It's a constant reminder that we are a fallen people. Every time someone dies, people should remember that we are sinners deserving eternal death. It's the wages of our sin. Father, may we as Christians not be those who pretend that this is easy or that we can escape. And yet, may we be people who have such a profound, lasting joy, even in the midst of sorrow, because we know death is not the end. For we who are in Christ, death is the very painful and ugly doorway that leads to eternal life. And our Savior knows death. And our Savior knows resurrection. So Father, help us to grieve and mourn with those who mourn and to feel the weight of their loss and help us to be instruments of joy and reminders of the cross. Because their death justice, and hope all meet. Father, may we be people who are not ashamed of the gospel and not ashamed to declare your wrath and your righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name.